0: Chapter Four of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Graustark by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Four The Invitation Extended. They were called by the porter early the next morning. The train was pulling into Washington, five hours late. Grenfell wondered, as he dressed, whether Fortune would permit him to see much of her during her brief day in the capital. He dreamt of a drive over the avenues, a trip to the monument, a visit to the halls of Congress, an inspection of public buildings, a dinner at his mother's home, luncheon at the Abbot, and other attentions which might give to him every moment of her day in Washington. But even as he dreamt, he was certain that his hopes could not be gratified. After the train had come to a standstill, he could hear the rustle of her garments in the next compartment. Then he heard her sweep into the passage, greet her uncle and aunt, utter a few commands to the maid and while he was adjusting his collar and necktie pass from the car no man ever made quicker time in dressing than did lorry she could hardly have believed him ideal had she seen his scowling face or heard the words that hissed through his impatient teeth she'll get away and that'll be the end of it "'he growled, seizing his traps and rushing from the train two minutes after her departure. "'The porter attempted to relieve him of his bags on the platform, "'but he brushed him aside and was off toward the station. "'Nice time for you to call a man, you idiot,' was his parting shot for the porter, "'forgetting, of course, that the foreigners had been called at the same time. With eyes intent on the crowd ahead, he plunged along, seeing nobody in his disappointed flight. "'I'll never forgive myself if I miss her,' he was wailing to himself. She was not to be seen in the waiting-rooms, so he rushed to the sidewalk. "'Baggage transferred? Cab, sir?' "'Go to the devil!' "'Yes, here. Take these traps and these checks, and rush my stuff to number so-and-so on W. Avenue.' Drunk's just in on B and O, he cried, tossing his burdens to a transfer man and giving him the check so quickly that the fellow's sleepy eyes opened wider than they had been for a month. Relieved of his impedimenta, he returned to the station. Good morning, Mr. Lorry. Are you in too much of a hurry to see your friends? cried a clear, musical voice as he stopped as if shot. The anxious frown flew from his brow, and was succeeded instantaneously by a glad smile. He wheeled and beheld her with Aunt Yvonne standing near the main entrance to the station. "'Why, good morning!' he exclaimed, extending his hand gladly. To his amazement she drew herself up haughtily and ignored the proffered hand. Only for a brief second did this strange and uncalled-for hauteur obtain— A bright smile swept over her face and her repentant fingers sought his timidly even awkwardly something told him that she was not accustomed to handshaking that same something impelled him to bend low and touch the gloved fingers with his lips he straightened with face flushed half fearful lest his act had been observed by curious loungers AND HE HAD TAKEN A LIBERTY IN A PUBLIC PLACE WHICH COULD NOT BE CONDONED. BUT SHE SMILED SERENELY, APPROVINGLY. THERE WAS NOT THE FAINTEST SIGN OF EMBARRASSMENT OR CONFUSION IN THE LOVELY FACE. ANY OTHER GIRL IN THE WORLD, HE THOUGHT, WOULD HAVE JERKED HER HAND AWAY AND GIGGLED FURIOUSLY. AUNT YVONNE INCLINED HER HEAD SLIGHTLY, BUT DID NOT PROFFER HER HAND. He wisely refrained from extending his own. "'I thought you had left the station,' he said. "'We are waiting for Uncle Kaspar, who is giving Hedrick instructions. Hedrick, you know, is to go on to New York with our boxes. He will have them aboard ship when we arrive there. All that we have with us is hand luggage. We leave Washington tonight. "'I had hoped you might stay over for a few days.' It is urgent business that compels us to leave so hastily, Mr. Lorry. Of all the cities in the world, I have most desired to see the capital of your country. Perhaps I may return some day. But do not let us detain you if you are in a hurry.' He started, looked guilty, stammered something about baggage, said he would return in a moment, and rushed aimlessly away, his ears fiery. "'I'm all kinds of a fool,' he muttered, as he raced around the baggage-room, and then back to where he had left the two ladies. Mr. Guggenslocker had joined them, and they were preparing to depart. Miss Guggenslocker's face expressed pleasure at seeing him. "'We thought you would never return, so long were you gone,' she cried, gaily. He had been gone just two minutes by the watch.' the old gentleman greeted him warmly and lorry asked them to what hotel they were going on being informed that they expected to spend the day at the ebbet he volunteered to accompany them saying that he intended to breakfast there quicker than a flash a glance unfathomable as it was brief passed between the three not quickly enough however to escape his keen watchful eyes on the alert since the beginning of his acquaintance with them in conjunction with his ears to catch something that might satisfy in a measure his burning curiosity what was the meaning of that glance it half-angered him for in it he thought he could distinguish annoyance apprehension dismay or something equally disquieting before he could stiffen his long frame and give vent to the dignified reconsideration that flew to his mind, the young lady dispelled all pain and displeasure, sending him into raptures, by saying, "'How good of you! We shall be so delighted to have you breakfast with us, Mr. Lorry, if it is convenient for you. You can talk to us of your wonderful city. Now say that you will be good to us.' stay your hunger and neglect your personal affairs long enough to give us these early morning hours i am sure we cannot trouble you much longer he expostulated gallantly and delightedly and then hurried forth to call a cab at eight o'clock he breakfasted with them his infatuation growing deeper and stronger as he sat for the hour beneath the spell of those eyes, the glorious face, the sweet, imperial air that was a part of her, strange and unaffected. As they were leaving the dining-room, he asked her if she would not drive with him. His ardent gallantry met with a surprising rebuke. The conversation up to that moment had been bright and cheery, her face had been the constant reflector of his own good spirits, and he had every reason in the world to feel that his suggestion would be received with pleasure. It was a shock to him, therefore, to see the friendly smile fade from her eyes, and a disdainful gleam succeed it. Her voice, a moment ago sweet and affable, changed its tone instantly to one so proud and arrogant "'that he could scarcely believe his ears. "'I shall be engaged during the entire day, Mr. Lorry,' she said, "'slowly, looking him fairly in the eyes with cruel positiveness. "'Those eyes of his were wide with surprise "'and the glowing gleam of injured pride. "'His lips closed tightly. "'Little red spots flew to his cheeks and then disappeared, "'leaving his face white and cold.' His heart throbbed painfully with the mingled emotions of shame and anger. For a moment he dared not speak. "'I have reason to feel thankful that you are to be engaged,' he said at last, calmly, without taking his eyes from hers. "'I am forced to believe, much to my regret, that I have offended when I intended to please. You will pardon my temerity.' there was no mistaking the resentment in his voice or the glitter in his eyes. Impulsively her little hand was stretched forth, falling upon his arm, while into her eyes came again the soft glow, and to her lips the most pathetic, appealing smile, the forerunner of a pretty plea for forgiveness. The change startled and puzzled him more than ever. In one moment she was unreasonably rude and imperious in the next, gracious and imploring. "'Forgive me,' she cried, the blue eyes battling bravely against the steel in the grey ones above. "'I was so uncivil. Perhaps I cannot make you understand why I spoke as I did, but, let me say, I richly deserved the rebuke. Pray forgive me, and forget that I have been disagreeable. Do not ask me to tell you why I was so rude to you just now, "'but overlook my unkind treatment of your invitation. "'Please, Mr. Lorry, I beg of you. "'I beg for the first time in my life. "'You have been so good to me. "'Be good to me still.' "'His wrath melted away like snow before the sunshine. "'How could he resist such an appeal?' "'I beg for the first time in my life,' "'whirled in his brain. "'What did she mean by that?' "'I absolve the penitent,' he said, gravely. "'I thank you. You are still my ideal American, "'courteous, bold, and gentle. "'I do not wonder that Americans can be masterful men. "'And now I thank you for your invitation, "'and ask you to let me withdraw my implied refusal. "'If you will take me for the drive, "'I shall be delighted and more than grateful.' "'You make me happy again.' he said, softly, as they drew near the elder members of the party, who paused to wait for them. "'I shall ask your uncle and aunt to accompany us. "'Uncle Caspar will be busy all day, but I am sure my aunt will be charmed. "'Aunt Yvonne, Mr. Lorry has asked us to drive with him over the city, and I have accepted for you. "'When are we to start, Mr. Lorry?' mr and mrs guggenslocker stared in a bewildered sort of manner at their niece then aunt Yvonne turned questioning eyes toward her husband who promptly bowed low before the tall american and said your kind offices shall never be forgotten sir when are the ladies to be ready lorry was weighing in his mind the advisability of asking them to dine in the evening with his mother but two objections presented themselves readily First, he was afraid of this perverse maid. Second, he had not seen his mother. In fact, he did not know that she was in town. "'At two o'clock, I fancy. That will give us the afternoon. You leave at nine to-night, do you not?' "'Yes, and will you dine with us this evening?' Her invitation was so unexpected in view of all that had happened that he looked askance. "'Ah, you must not treat my invitation as I did yours,' she cried, merrily, although he could detect the blush that returns with the recollection of a reprimand. "'You should profit by what I have been taught.' The girl abruptly threw her arm about her aunt, and cried, as she drew away in the direction of her room, "'At two, then, and at dinner this evening, I bid you good morning, Mr. Lorry.' The young man, delighted with the turn of affairs, but dismayed by what seemed a summary dismissal, bowed low. He waited until the strange trio entered the elevator, and then sauntered downstairs, his hands in his pockets, his heart as light as air. Unconsciously he jingled the coins. A broad smile came over his face as he drew forth a certain piece— Holding it between his thumb and forefinger, he said, "'You are what it cost her to learn my name, are you? Well, my good fellow, you may be very small, but you bought something that looks better than Guggenslocker on a hotel register. Your mistress is an odd bit of humanity, a most whimsical bit, I must say. First she's no, and then she's yes.' you're lucky my coin to have fallen into the custody of one who will not give you over to the mercy of strangers for the sake of a whim you are now retired on a pension well deserved after valiant service in the cause of a most capricious queen in an hour he was at home and relating to his mother the story of his wanderings neglecting for reasons best known to himself The events which occurred after Denver had been left behind, except for a casual allusion to a party of foreigners. At one o'clock, faultlessly attired, he descended to the brougham, telling Mrs. Lorry that he had invited some strangers to see the city. On the way downtown, he remembered that he was in business, the law business, and that it would be well to drop in and let his uncle know he was in the city. On second thought, however, he concluded it was too near two o'clock to waste any time on business, so the office did not know that he was in town until the next day, and then to no great extent. For several hours he revelled in her society, sitting beside her in that roomy brougham, Aunt Yvonne opposite, explaining to her the many places of interest as they passed, They entered the capital, they saw the White House, and, as they were driving back to the hotel, passed the President of the United States. Miss Guggenslocker, when informed that the President's carriage was approaching, relaxed gracefully from the stately reserve that had been puzzling him, and revealed an eager curiosity. Her eyes fastened themselves upon the President, lory finding entertainment in the changes that came over her unconscious face. Instead of noting the veneration he had expected, he was astonished and somewhat provoked to see a slight curl of disgust at the corners of her mouth, a pronounced disappointment in her eyes. Her face expressed ridicule, pure and simple, and, he was shocked to observe, THE EXPOSURE WAS UNCONSCIOUS, THEREFORE SINCERE. "'You do not like our ruler?' he asked, as the carriage whirled by. He was returning his hat to his head as he spoke. "'I cannot say I do not know him,' she replied, a tinge of sarcasm in her voice. "'You Americans have one consolation. When you tire of a ruler, you can put another in his place.' "'Is it not wise to do so quite often?' "'I don't think wise is the word. "'Expedient is better. "'I am to infer that you have no politics. "'One house has ruled our land for centuries. "'Since I came to your land, "'I have not once seen a man wave his hat with mad adulation "'and cry from his heart, "'Long live the President!' "'For centuries in my country,' Every child has been born with the words, Long live the prince, in his heart, and he learns to say them next after the dear parental words are mastered. Long live the prince, long live the princess, are tributes of love and honor that greet our rulers from birth to death. We are not fickle, and we have no politics." Do your rulers hear tin horns, brass bands, campaign yells, firecrackers, and stump speeches every four years? Do they know what it means to be the voluntary choice of a whole nation? Do they know what it is to rule because they have won the right and not because they were born to it? Has there ever been a homage-surfeited ruler in your land? Who has known the joy that comes with the knowledge that he has earned the right to be cheered from one end of the country to the other? Is there not a difference between your hereditary long live the prince and our wild, enthusiastic, spontaneous hurrah for Cleveland, Miss Guggenslocker? All men are equal at the beginning in our land. The man who wins the highest gift that can be bestowed by seventy millions of people is the man who had brains and not title as a birthright." He was a bit exasperated. There, I have displeased you again. You must pardon my antiquated ideas. We as true and loyal subjects of a good sovereign cannot forget that our rulers are born, not made perhaps we are afflicted at times with brainless monarchs and are to be pitied you are generous in your selection of potentates be generous then with me a benighted royalist who craves leniency of one who may some day be president of the united states granted without discussion as possible though not probable president of the united states I am magnanimous to an unfortunate who can never hope to be princess no matter how well she might grace the gilded throne. She greeted this glowing remark with a smile so intoxicating that he felt himself the most favoured of men. He saw that smile in his mind's eye for months afterward that maddening sparkle of joy which flashed from her eyes to the very bottom of his heart there to snuggle forever with memory's most priceless treasures their dinner was but one more phase of this fascinating dream more than once he feared he was about to awake to find bleak unhappiness where exquisite joy had reigned so gloriously As it drew to an end, a sense of depression came over him. An hour, at most, was all that he could have with her. Nine o'clock was drawing nigh, with its regrets, its longings, its desolation. He determined to retain the pleasure of the present, until, amid the clanging of bells and the roll of car-wheels, the dismal future began. HIS INTENTION TO ACCOMPANY THEM TO THE STATION WAS EXPRESSED AS THEY WERE LEAVING THE TABLE. SHE HAD BEGUN TO SAY GOOD-BYE TO HIM WHEN HE INTERRUPTED, SELF-CONSCIOUSNESS FORCING THE WORDS hurriedly AND DISJOINTEDLY FROM HIS LIPS. "'YOU WILL LET ME GO TO THE STATION WITH YOU. I SHALL, UH, DEEM IT A PLEASURE.' SHE RAISED HER EYEBROW SLIGHTLY, BUT THANKED HIM, AND SAID SHE WOULD CONSIDER IT AN HONOR. His face grew hot, and his heart cold, with the fancy that there was in her eyes a gleam which said, "'I pity you, poor fellow!' Notwithstanding his strange misgiving, and the fact that his pride had sustained quite a perceptible shock, he drove with them to the station. They went to the sleeping-car a few minutes before the time set for the train's departure, and stood at the bottom of the steps uttering the good-byes, the good-speeds, and the sincere hope that they might meet again. Then came the sharp activity of the trainmen, the hurry of belated passengers. He glanced soberly at his watch. "'It is nine o'clock. Perhaps you would better get aboard,' he said, and proceeded to assist Aunt Yvonne up the steps." She turned and pressed his hand gently before passing into the car. "'Adieu, good friend. You have made it so very pleasant for us,' she said earnestly. The tall, soldierly old gentleman was waiting to assist his niece into the coach. "'Go first, Uncle Kaspar,' the girl made Laurie happy by saying. "'I can easily come up unaided.' "'Or I can assist her,' Laurie hastened to add giving her a grateful look which she could not misunderstand. The uncle shook hands warmly with the young man, and passed up the steps. She was following when Laurie cried, "'Will you not allow me?' She laughingly turned to him from the steps and stretched forth her hand. "'And now it is good-bye forever. for ever. I am so sorry that I have not seen more of you,' she said. He took her hand and held it tightly for a moment." "'I shall never forget the past few days,' he said, a thrill in his voice. "'You have put something into my life that can never be taken away. "'You will forget me before you are out of Washington, "'but I i shall always see you as you are now.' "'She drew her hand away gently, but did not take her eyes from his upturned face. "'You are mistaken. Why should I forget you, ever?' ARE YOU NOT THE IDEAL AMERICAN WHOSE NAME I BOUGHT? I SHALL ALWAYS REMEMBER YOU AS I SAW YOU AT DENVER. NOT AS I HAVE BEEN SINCE? HE CRIED. HAVE YOU CHANGED SINCE I FIRST SAW YOU? SHE ASKED QUAINTLY. I HAVE INDEED, FOR YOU SAW ME BEFORE I SAW YOU. I AM GLAD I HAVE NOT CHANGED FOR THE WORSE IN YOUR EYES. "'As I first knew you with my eyes, I will say that they are trustworthy,' she said tantalizingly. "'I do not mean that I have changed externally.' "'In any other case my eyes would not serve,' she cried, with mock disappointment. "'Still,' she added, sweepingly, "'you are my ideal American. "'Good-bye. The man has called all aboard. "'Good-bye.' he cried, swinging up on the narrow step beside her. Again he clasped her hand, and she drew back in surprise. "'You are going out of my land, but not out of my mind. If you wish your eyes to see the change in me, you have only to look at them in a mirror. They are the change, they themselves. Goodbye. I hope that I may see you again.' She hesitated an instant, her eyes wavering beneath his. The train was moving slowly now. "'I pray that we may meet,' she said softly at last, so softly that he barely heard the words. Had she uttered no sound he could have been sure of her response, for it was in her telltale eyes. His blood leaped madly. "'You will be hurt if you wait till the train is running at full speed,' she cried suddenly returning to the abandoned merry mood she pushed him gently in her excitement don't you see how rapidly we are moving please go there was a terror in her eyes that pleased him "Goodbye," then he cried adieu my american she cried quickly As he swung out, ready to drop to the ground, she said, her eyes sparkling with something that suggested mischief, her face more bewitching than ever under the flicker of the great arc-lights, "'You must come to Edelweiss to see me. I shall expect you—' He thought there was a challenge in the tones. Or was it mockery? "'I will, by heaven, I will!' he exclaimed. A startled expression flashed across her face and her lips parted as if in protestation. As she leaned forward, holding stoutly to the handrail, there was no smile on her countenance. A white hand fluttered before his eyes, and she was gone. He stood, hat in hand, watching the two red lights at the end of the train until they were lost in the night. End of chapter 4